0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, December 10th, we are studying Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The final prophet of the Old Testament speaks of the messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord, the one who comes suddenly to his temple. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Hey, it's great to be back.
0: So we're in the Book of Malachi, Pastor Denzer. That's the appointed reading, the one we've got for today, Chapter 3, Verses 1-7, through is the appointed Old Testament reading for Advent 2 in Series C. This is the first section from the Book of Malachi that we have in this series here on Sharper Iron. We'll be looking at it again, Chapter 4 as well, in a little while. So... We're in the book of Malachi. He's the last Old Testament prophet. What do we know about him? Let's let's set the context in terms of Malachi as a prophet, his ministry, his book as a whole.
1: Sure. So uh, maybe we'll do it in the other order. When was it written? We can tell that it's probably written... In the post-exilic time, so after uh, the children of Israel are released from Babylon, the Persian empires let them go back and uh, start their process of rebuilding the temple and resettling in Judah, which at this time is called Yehud. Uh, And this is probably around the 5th century B.C., so this is uh, 450 to 430 B.C., We can tell there's a lot of similarities to what Ezra and Nehemiah are talking about. We can see the temple's been built, the priesthood is reenacted. We're talking about tithes, which you're going to need if you're rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the Jews living in that area. Uh, But then we come to the question of who is Malachi, and we have a little bit of an issue, and that's because this is one of those names that means something. This name, uh, Malachi, is literally translated my messenger, which then begs the question, or raises the question is this a person or is this a title? So, uh, why would you consider one or the other? Well, uh, there's a couple other places uh, in the last two books, in Zechariah and in Malachi, where it mentions this oracle of the word of the Lord, the first words of the book of Malachi. It's also the first words of chapter 9 of Zechariah and chapter 12 of Zechariah. Those who try to figure out how the Bible was pieced together, who have a predilection to see the Bible as a collection of pieced together works. Uh, We'll point to that as evidence that that maybe this is just uh, a collection. We we know that the 12 minor prophets of which Malachi is the last are a collection of books. They weren't written in that chronological order. They were assembled by somebody and put in that order. Uh, So they think maybe even these were three different writings that were pieced together. Uh, but evidence in favor of Malachi being actually a name—one, it's—it's not unusual for Hebrew names to mean something; they almost always do. Uh, and it adds this—this this phrase in the beginning is slightly different than the other place. It's by the hand of Malachi, and that it simply has its stamp as an independent book. Its topics are different than Zechariah, and it's. Uh, it fits together as a single book, which does suggest that there probably was a prophet named Malachi and uh, what a fortuitous name.
0: So what do we know about Malachi's, I mean, probably we're talking about an individual that makes perfect sense. It's what we know from other books of scripture. What do we know about his ministry, their post-exilic Judah, and particularly what kind of topics does he address within his book?
1: Yeah, we know practically nothing about him. Uh, We don't even necessarily know which rulers he's working with, although it seems likely he's working with Nehemiah based on the timing and based on what he's talking about. Uh, But we can figure out a little bit of the context he's dealing with by looking at the topics he addresses. We see that this is an oracle, as we mentioned. That's an explanation of how God is going to intervene with his people and it's a highly rhetorical book. There are 22 questions, and, and the book is kind of arranged in a number of these uh, disputations almost, uh, a monologue where where the prophet will say something, he'll be correcting or accusing the Jews of sin. There will be a rhetorical question back, why are you saying that about us, or, or uh, no, of course not, right? Kind of justifying themselves and trying to imply the prophet should get off their back. But then the prophet comes back and gives the evidence against it, says what the Lord sees, which maybe the people think they can cover up, and uh, gives a defense of why he is preaching, ultimately, words of exposing, accusing, and calling to repentance. And that's definitely what Malachi is doing, like many of the prophets do, calling uh, God's people who have fallen into sin. To repent and to return to
0: him. How does, how does Malachi then, with those some of those themes, with that structure, how does he fit into the season of Advent? Why does he show up here on the second Sunday in Advent? He shows up again another time. What's he doing in Advent? What's that connection?
1: Sure. I think we should remember that the origins of Advent really are a season of repentance. Uh, the Church always prepares for its big feasts and its big days with repentance, And uh, originally, the color of Advent was violet uh, for the sake of repentance, as well as royalty uh, with our Lord Jesus Christ uh, riding into Jerusalem on Advent 1. Advent 2 in year C, which is where Malachi shows up, uh, is all about John the Baptist, uh, who, of course, was a preacher of repentance. It says in the Gospels that he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling them a brood of vipers in our text today, and he's asking everybody to, uh, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So we can see how this Malachi passage, uh, Malachi the book, fits very well with it. But our passage today, as we'll see, which does stand sort of at the center of Malachi's whole book, This passage mentions a messenger that goes before the face of the Lord, and and that's going to be the one we're dealing with. To to look at kind of the the big focus of Malachi, he talks about priests that are are not offering their sacrifices rightly. He wants a, a pure priesthood. He speaks against unfaithful marriage. Uh, particularly those who are marrying outside of the Jewish faith at this time. Uh, he talks about the justice that the Lord's messenger is going to bring. That's the section we'll look at today. He calls them to, for repentance uh, where they have not given full tithes, but have pretended as if they were really doing the Lord's work. Uh, so he calls upon them to be generous for the Lord's good. Uh, and at the end, he, he says in two key sections, that they need to keep the Lord's Word, they need to observe His Torah, observe His commandments, and be diligent and devoted to the Lord's Word, something that I think still stands for today, but especially makes good sense when we're dealing with a time when the temple is lacking something very important, and that is the, the, the glorious presence of God that we're so familiar with from Exodus. Uh, this is a strange time, and since he is the last prophet, this is also right before the Lord no longer sends prophets. There's this great silent period uh, in between Malachi and the New Testament. What are they to be attending to? It's the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, and the prophets. These words from Malachi himself. Uh, and waiting for someone to come who's going to uh His his advent is going to be uh, the harbinger of his advent is Elijah or this messenger that is coming before the great day of the Lord, which which makes Malachi the perfect choice as the last book of the Old Testament. But really, he, he has that function of calling them to be diligent to the Lord's word, to return to his truth and to expect something to be coming soon.
0: Let's see how Malachi accomplishes those things in the text that we've got for today. We're in Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That is our text for today, Malachi 3, verses 1 through 7. Pastor Dinser, those opening words in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, I think are familiar to us because they get quoted in the New Testament. Who is this talking about? This is talking about John the
1: Baptist. We have that on pretty good authority. Jesus himself is the one who says it. He says it in Mark. He says it a little bit in Luke, but he especially says it in Matthew chapter 11, which is, I think, going to mention a few things we're going to want to talk about today. Uh, And here in verse 7, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds about John the Baptist. This is after he sends the two uh, disciples who come from John asking, "Are are you the Christ or are we supposed to wait for another one? He says, you can go tell John what you see and hear. Uh, But to the crowds, he says, look, uh, John is no wimpy guy. He's not wearing soft clothing. He's not a reed shaken by the wind. That's why he's in jail right now. He's stuck to his guns and preached repentance, frankly, exactly like Malachi. And then he says, so what? Did you go out to see some prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, because John the Baptist is the one about whom it is written, quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What's interesting is uh, uh, Mark actually mushes this together with Isaiah 40, uh, the voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, which which then brings all of it together, these these passages that we think most of all characterize uh Characterize John the Baptist. They get put together in Mark's gospel, uh, but they are actually from two places Isaiah and Malachi.
0: Why does the Lord's way need to be prepared? Why is this messenger coming before the Lord to prepare his way necessary?
1: It's necessary because, well, really, we take it up in our Advent understanding that we prepare for the Lord's coming through repentance, that when the day of the Lord comes, it's not just going to be to come and pat us on the back he's he's making a visitation and the visitation is so that he can see how things are going when the lord comes then it's not automatically good news and that's hard for us to understand because jesus tells us that for us as christians it is to be great news we're to be watchful and expect expecting his coming it's going to be joyful for us but uh but that's because we understand what he's coming to do. He's coming to forgive sins and, and we're those who repent of our sins. For those who are arrogant, who who aren't doing his works, who who think he's never gonna come back, maybe, and and who aren't watching at all, it will not be an exciting thing. It'll be like a thief in the night, totally unexpected, and it will be terrifying because he comes to judge. Uh, And so many of our Advent hymns bring this in, uh, that we're looking to the last day as well as to his, the observance of his first coming at Christmas. And, And so the Lord's coming is a twofold coming. It's, it's in judgment, which is a terror to his foes but a light of consolation and a blessed peace and joy for those who love his appearing and are looking
0: for it. Malachi addresses more of John the Baptist and his his role as this preparer of the Lord's way later in his book. And I think we just read this in one of our midweek services in Luke chapter one. The angel Gabriel picks up on some of this as well when he comes to John's father, Zechariah.
1: Yeah, this is uh, Malachi 4, 5 to 6, right at the end of the book. This is uh, one of the traditional readings, Old Testament readings and epistles that goes with uh, w- with the readings in Advent. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of children to the fathers, uh, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are the last words of Malachi, not exactly a... A cheerful or optimistic, but in fact, a warning note at the end of his writing. You're right. Uh, that's exactly what uh, the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah. He quotes Malachi and says, this is who your son is going to be. Right after that, well, the hearts of the father wasn't quite turned to his child yet because he questions it. And of course, he struck mute for nine months as a result. But this passage is also cited by Jesus just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, He goes on and talks about how from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied up until John. And here's the key part. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, you know, at the beginning of John's gospel, when John the Baptist is questioned by the Pharisees, of course, he famously says, no, I'm not Elijah. He's not going to claim that title for himself. He wants to be just the voice, just Isaiah 40, the guy uh, preparing the way for the Lord in the wilderness. But he's got to own both these passages from Malachi too. Jesus says, that he is the messenger that goes before the Lord's face, And that means he's the Elijah that was referenced that is to come. And that gives John a special place. Jesus says that he's the greatest of all men born of women. But the thing that makes him great is that he's the last, the final. He's the prophet who actually gets to do what Peter in his epistle says they all wanted to do, which is to see this Christ, see the one that they're always talking about who's yet to come, which we, of course, know because he's already come. John gets to point the finger and say, that's the dude, that's the one. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is actually greater than him. And and that's talking about you and me, the fact that, that we live in the New Testament, when we know our Lord Jesus Christ not only by name, but by what he has done in his first coming, to die, to reconcile us to the Father by his blood. Uh, And to make then his second coming a joyful, an entirely joyful thing for those who love his appearing.
0: So John comes as the messenger to prepare the way before the Lord, sent by the Lord. It's I send my messenger, the Lord speaks. And then Malachi announces that the Lord whom you seek, you're, you're looking for this Lord, He will suddenly come to his temple. Now, what does Malachi have in mind here? I can think of numerous occasions when the Lord comes to the temple in the Gospels. What what does he have in mind? Good question. Let's put that off for one second and just ask, why is this a big
1: deal? I mean, wouldn't you expect God to be in his temple? Isn't that the reason we have a temple? Uh, There are two passages in particular that really help to shed light on this. The first is Haggai chapter 2. And here it's talking about the new temple. Uh, the one that was built after they come back uh, from uh, uh, being enslaved or, or rather exiled in Babylon. And it says in verse 3, this is, uh, excuse me, this is the prophet Haggai uh, speaking. And he says, who is left among you who saw this house, this temple that is, in its former glory? And he asks, how do you see it now? And here it's not a rhetorical question. He, he gives the answer. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? That's a strange thing to say that the temple of God that was rebuilt is as nothing. Kind of a bold thing to say, too, after they put all that work into it. Uh, but, but the point is something is missing. He says later in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall actually be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So something's missing that needs to come. And that something is also hinted at in Ezra chapter 3. I'll paraphrase it. It's, it's a great day when they're kind of dedicating and recognizing, making some first sacrifices at the, at the newly built temple. And everybody cheers and rejoices, except for some of the old guys who it says they wept uh, when they saw it, because it had lost its former glory. And in fact, it makes this weird point that nobody could quite tell whether the cheering or the weeping was louder, because it all was mingled together on that day. Leaves it in a very uncertain note. Now, what does that mean? Was the temple not as glorious as Solomon's? Yeah, we know that, because Herod undertook that great project to to beef it up, to to renovate it and make it really glorious right before Jesus uh, came onto the scene in the Gospels. But the glory of God is something different. The glory of the temple was not just that it was pretty. The glory of the temple was that glory cloud, that, that fiery and smoky presence of the Lord that was tangibly, visibly there uh, in the tabernacle. That's the fiery pillar that led them through the desert. the The cloud by day that also led them uh, through the Red Sea. It's the fire that came out from the tabernacle to start the first sacrifice there on the altar. And the priest's duty was to tend that fire and keep it going all the time. This is the Lord's physical presence. What does it mean if your new temple is lacking that? It's lacking the only thing that really matters. The Lord is the one who sanctifies his house. And if you're missing the, the main event, it's kind of an empty facade. That's part of the reason why Jesus is not that impressed with Herod's temple. In fact, he says, you know, tear it down because uh, there's a bigger temple we want to rebuild in three days, his own body. But also then it sets the stage for something's missing. We need a new temple. We need a new glory of the Lord. And, and this in so many ways in the Gospels is clearly shown to be Jesus Christ himself. He's the one we're waiting for. He's the glory of the Lord. He really was there, present in the tabernacle, uh, even before he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary, which is what the Gospels tell us. Uh, So we're waiting for Christ to come. Now, now the the funny question is, okay, which event in Jesus' life do we want to Tie this to. Uh, I'm familiar with this Malachi passage being used in some of our older hymnals as the Old Testament reading for first Sunday after Epiphany, which is when we hear about the boy Jesus coming to the temple and astounding the teachers there. And I think that's one candidate. I suppose even earlier than that, we could talk about the presentation when he's there with Simeon and Anna, and Simeon takes him in his arms and says, Well, now I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. But there's another one I think that I would probably put my money on, and that is the cleansing of the temple by Jesus, especially because of what our, our text says in a second that he's going to come, you know, like a refiner's fire, uh, and he's gonna he's gonna clean house a little bit. We know this well because it's kind of the kickoff, one of the kickoffs to Passion Week, uh, that the Lord rides into Jerusalem, uh, but then immediately the first thing he does after weeping over this city is make a uh, whip and start kicking out the money changers there in the temple. Uh, what's very interesting is John's gospel, which you know, we don't have to debate this here, but some people think John's gospel might actually be the better candidate for the chronological, this, these things happened in this order, gospel. Uh, John's gospel puts the cleansing of the temple very early in the book, kind of has it set up the whole, uh, the whole gospel which at least at the very least draws our attention to the importance of that event because uh, Jesus clears out the temple so he can do his teaching there and, and that all makes it i think a strong candidate for maybe the the precise moment when our lord jesus christ fulfills this from malachi 3 and he suddenly comes to his temple and uh, shows himself to be the the cleanser of it but in any case it is certainly pointing to the glory of the lord returning to these lost and forsaken people here in judah and that's really what happens when jesus arrives
0: you have that that text in ezekiel as well i can't remember exactly where it's in the first part of his book where the glory of the lord departs the temple in in a very dramatic fashion oh yeah and then the glory of the lord if i'm not mistaken it does return to the new temple that ezekiel envisions in the end of his book as well. And as you said, I mean, when that happens, when the Lord's presence is not there in the temple, that's that's a big deal. That's what makes it the actual temple. And so for the Lord to return to his temple, to come to his temple, that's, that's a huge event. And Malachi sees it here. And I, I think you, you made a good case to connect it to that cleansing of the temple, given the way Malachi describes it here that the Lord in that event, particularly as we connect it to what happens in John's gospel and the way that he records it, the Lord does show who the true temple is. He's the true temple. And you can even think of the way John opens his gospel in the prologue, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, to to translate that in a, a more literal way. Jesus is the temple. He's the one who has arrived. God is present among us in our human flesh. The fulfillment of Malachi 3 and and all of these promises in which God dwells among his people. Then we'll go ahead and take our break right there. Pastor Denzer, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, December 10th. We are studying Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We've got Pastor Sean Denzer with us. He is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod and also the chaplain for the International Center there in St. Louis. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, we were talking about John the Baptist, the messenger whom the Lord sends to prepare his way. The Lord then comes suddenly to his temple. And then as the text from Malachi continues... It describes the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now we've got a a messenger here mentioned again in this verse. Is this the same messenger mentioned at the beginning of the verse? I don't think so. I
1: think for two reasons. One, it says it's the Lord whom we're seeking, and he's the one who's going to suddenly come. And the messenger of the covenant, right? So this is more than just the messenger who prepares the way for something. This is the guy who brings what we're waiting for. And a a covenant is a testament. Something that's very important in the rest of Malachi is appealing to the the patriarchal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which haven't been broken, haven't been destroyed. They're not like the tabernacle that, you know, the temple that got destroyed. Uh, They're not like the promise to live in the land that now has obviously uh, been destroyed since they were out of the land for so long. But here, it's going to be some kind of new covenant, and we're going to delight in this messenger. That's not just the preparer. That's the main event. And this is Jesus then.
0: Now, one of the one of the features that I think we should probably point out is the word messenger that's translated messenger is also sometimes translated angel. So just as a, a I guess it's just Interesting, I think, to point out that sometimes the word angel does not mean a heavenly being who has no body, the one who the created being who serves the Lord in heaven and serves as a deliverer of good news, but sometimes the word angel just means messenger and even both John and Jesus are described with that word in the scriptures.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very generic word, I suppose. The context tells you the, the what's going on yeah, it would be a big mistake to say, well, it's talking about Jesus, therefore Jesus is just an angel, He's not really God. or to say that John the Baptist was not a man at all, He was really just an angel in disguise or something. Uh, you know, we have the words of Jesus to clarify both of those accounts.
0: Sometimes even pastors are referred to as and as angels in the scriptures, right?
1: I really do think so. Uh, I can't think of the places off the top of my head. But there are a couple in the New Testament where it mentions angels, and it doesn't seem to be speaking about heavenly beings there. Uh, and the next, uh, the next association in our mind should be messengers of some kind of, of uh, word of the Lord. And for us in the New Testament, we give them the general name,
0: pastor right? The, the text that comes to my mind potentially is in Revelation 2 and 3, the angels of the churches there very well could be the pastors of the churches. Now, I that's a bit of a, a side tangent. So we'll come back to Malachi. Verse verse 2 of chapter 3, who can endure the day of his coming? So now we are very clearly talking about the Lord's coming to his temple. Who can endure this day? Who can stand when he appears? This Day of the Lord or the day of his coming is a pretty common theme throughout the prophets, right? Yes.
1: uh, And that's really, I think, one of the best ways to talk about the end times, the end of the world is the day of the Lord. But but especially when we're reading the apocalypses, the Old Testament apocalypse literature, these prophetic sayings about the end of the world or the coming of Jesus. We immediately come up with this confusion, right? Because uh, even if we were going to pick the cleansing of the temple as kind of the obvious fulfillment of this passage, you know, the Lord just drove out some some people he didn't want in the building. He didn't kill them. He didn't judge them and send them to hell right then and there. Uh, this this passage, as we go on, sounds more and more like the last day. It doesn't sound like anything Jesus did in his ministry. And we find this a lot in the Old Testament prophets. It's as if looking from their distance, they did not see everything clearly. They certainly didn't see the timeline of how it was going to be. And this fits so well with what uh, the Lord says uh, by Peter's mouth in Second in, in Peter, uh, that these people were diligently, excuse me, 1st Peter, they were diligently looking into when the Christ should come. Uh, But but not all of the details were revealed. That's why, you know, we only hear about the seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. And later on, we get more and more details about this offspring of the Lord. You know, we hear about the scepter that won't depart from Judah. We hear about uh, the new covenant that he's going to make and implant that in their hearts Uh, But we don't have the whole picture, really, until our Lord Jesus Christ comes. And we should say the same thing about the last day. Even now, we're not exactly sure how all of these things play out, uh, other than we have the Lord's uh, clear instructions about uh, what to expect and that we should always be waiting for. So uh, whenever we're reading the Old Testament prophets especially, expect to find things that sound like the ministry, the life of Jesus here on earth, but that also sound like the last day, the return for judgment. Uh, This is perfect for one of the common themes of Advent, which is the three comings of our Lord, that he came first uh, in Bethlehem, he came again, or he will come again at the last day, and even now he comes to us in his word. Malachi is the perfect prophet to pick to get all of these going at once, because all the prophets tend to mix up the first and second coming of Jesus and consider them almost as if they were, as it says here, a single day. We know, of course, our Lord is here for more than one day. and uh, But also that the word of God is the visitation of the Lord. That's why at the end he says, pay attention to that word. Uh, that's how you'll be prepared. And here he's going to say also, you know, the The prospect of the Lord returning, of him coming suddenly to his temple and coming as one who's going to purify things, means that we should attend to his word now and hear it as if it were his voice present, because that's the power of the Lord's word.
0: Malachi describes this day with a couple of images. He says, he, the Lord's coming, he is like a refiner's fire, that's one image, and like Fuller's soap. Now, he's, he's going to talk more about the refiner's fire in a bit, but and, and that might be a little more familiar image to us. What's a Fuller's soap?
1: A Fuller's soap is the soap used to clean linens, to clean cloths, and in, in the ancient days, it's always heavy-duty lye soap. I think that's helpful to see. It's not just, you know, little bubble bath going on. This is a caustic, uh, you gotta think the Ajax or whatever you got under your sink that's locked up so the kids don't get into it. It's it's tough soap and you don't really wanna be scrubbed by this and, and there's where the refiner's fire is is an image that's used a lot more in the Bible. Psalm 12 uses it, Peter uses it when he talks in in, in the first epistle about the suffering that people are going through. Uh, that our faith is going to be more precious than gold, which, though it is refined by fire, is not going to survive the fire of the last day, right? So you take your uh, nuggets of ore, uh, you know, there's all sorts of rock and dirt and some precious gold in there, and you throw it in a hot oven, you burn away all the dross. That stuff's useless. Get rid of that. And what remains is good gold. That you can take and make whatever jewelry you want out of it. And, and Peter says "Then our faith is even more precious than gold. Because guess what? There will be no gold that will survive the fires of the last day of judgment. But he says our faith in Christ Jesus will. So this is the coming of the Lord, right? His, his judgment is going to be a purifying, fiery judgment. And uh, uh, only the only the true things are going to survive it.
0: Now, Malachi particularly notes that the Lord will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi so that they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Why particularly does he single out the sons of Levi in need of this purification?
1: Remember his time, first of all, that this is when the new temple has just been built. The focus is on restoring the life of Judah and that includes the Levites. This is the tribe that is set apart to be the priests for the Lord. And everybody, at least all the males in the tribe of Levi, are to be priests. Uh, in the uh, before the being carried off into Babylon, they were never allowed to have their own land. They were to be supported by the offerings of the people. Uh, they got to eat from the sacrifices in the temple. And it was their duty then to be servants at the Lord's temple, offering these sacrifices day and night, as well as the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And crooked priests are all over the Old Testament, not just after the exile. But they're dealing with that here, and they're also dealing with kind of half measures to reinstate this life of the worship. So that's immediately apparent to everybody there. But remember, we're not just talking about restoring the Old Testament way of worship, the life and the sacrifices of the temple, the Levitical priesthood. We're already looking to the messenger of the new covenant that is to come, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. So we do have to ask the question, what Levites, what what priests are there in the New Testament? Here is where one of our particularly important Lutheran insights, which comes out of the scriptures, uh, has to be mentioned, and that is, In the New Testament, priests are Christians. They're not a special class. They're not passed on by heredity like the Levites were. But we, you and I, and all Christians are described as priests of the Lord. Peter, again, speaks about this and says that we are a royal priesthood, a spiritual priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Paul says the same thing. He says that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, and this is our spiritual liturgical act of worship. He's talking about the liturgical life of the temple, because Christ is the true high priest. He's the one who's made the once and for all sacrifice, and our sacrifices then are good works and prayers. And as for the pastors, they have their important work as well, but they're not first and foremost the priests of the New Testament.
0: What what makes these offerings, as as the text continues in verse four, what makes them pleasing in the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years? What what had gone wrong and, and what will the Lord restore to make these offerings pleasing once more? Well, certainly there have
1: been all kinds of crooked dealings, uh that the priests were were, were not doing things properly, either according to God's word, uh, or that they were just doing half measures or perhaps skimming things off the top and being top and being dishonest. Uh, we see this, by the way, at least in one example with Judas in the New Testament. That he goes to the the people at the temple, and you know, he says, "I betrayed innocent blood," and they don't they don't offer any sacrifices for him. They don't tell him how to atone for his sins. They tell him, "Well, you got to deal with that yourself, buddy." And sadly, we see how he did, uh, which is not the way any of us can atone for ourselves, right? I think that also is at play here. Again, what's missing in this new temple that they build? What's missing is the Lord himself. And that's where true holiness comes from. That's where the righteousness that avails before God comes from, it comes from himself. I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies you. That's the whole reason he urged them to keep the Sabbaths in Exodus 31. So uh, what is it that characterizes the purity of these Levites in the New Covenant, if we can call them that? Uh, It's that they bring these offerings in righteousness. This is such an important word to us as as Lutherans, but as for all Christians. The righteousness that, that stands before God is the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Uh, the righteousness that is received by faith, by trusting in his blood, uh, in his sacrifice. And uh, just as the Old Testament priests would always, you know, first lay down in the morning, the morning sacrifice, offer it, give the benediction, that's the one that Zechariah didn't quite get to finish. But then they would put on top of it all of the other sacrifices of the day for whatever particular uh, purpose they had. That's the same way our prayers and good works are. Christ is, has put down the real sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in his sacrifice, then we bring our, our worship, our prayers, uh, as well as our good works for the benefit of our neighbor. And that's only possible because of what Christ has done for us. All
0: right. We we bring our offerings in faith. I mean, think about you you mentioned where Paul talks about the matter of living sacrifices, which comes at a really pivotal moment there in the book of Romans as a whole. It's it's after he's gotten done laying out the gospel in the first part of the book. And then, you know, he says, therefore, it's it's a huge transition on the basis of the mercies of God. All of this this living sacrifice, these offerings that we New Testament Levites bring come out of faith i'm also reminded of of the way the writer to the hebrews structures his chapter 11 and when he talks about abel and how abel gave his offering in faith that was the difference between his offering and Cain's was the faith in which he offered it and and in that faith then our offerings are are acceptable to the lord as well because of what jesus has done in his once for all sacrifice it's beautiful so Pastor, Pastor Denzer in verse five, then this matter of the refiner's fire really comes to, comes to a climax. It seems the Lord says, I will draw near to you for judgment. And he says he'll be a swift witness against several different types of, of sinners, which is, as I read through that list that's given there, it seems it comes to a climax in the words, they do not fear me. What's going on there in verse five?
1: All of this fits really well with the gospel for year C, which is where this is appointed in the lectionary, uh, because that's where the soldiers and the other people ask John the Baptist, you know, how do we bear fruits in keeping with repentance? His answer is not that spectacular. He, he kind of says, do your duty. You know, if you're a soldier, don't, don't uh, abuse people. If you're a tax collector, don't take more than you're supposed to. Uh, really, these are nothing new either, right? Keep the second commandment. Don't be a, a magician. Uh, keep the sixth commandment. Don't be an adulterer. Keep the eighth commandment. Swear rightly uh, and don't swear falsely against other people. Uh, and don't take advantage of everyone. Uh, none of these are particularly new commandments. Uh, but but this is the basis of the Lord's judgment. Uh, what are the sins he's against? He's against even the everyday ones. The the Catechism says this so well, too, when Luther, you know, tells us to confess those sins that we know and feel in our hearts. Sometimes we treat that as if it's saying only the really bad ones that bug you a lot. But when Luther gets to his particular examples, he says, well, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. That's how you're going to find these sins uh, that the Lord Lord's judgment rests upon unless they're put away in Christ Jesus and his wounds. And when Luther gives examples, there are things like, are you being lazy, right? Uh, almost everyday things, very similar to what John the Baptist was speaking of, and very similar here to the troubles that were everyday rampant uh, in the, with the people of Israel. And much like those commandments, what's at the heart of it? The fear of the Lord. Uh, where the first commandment is lacking, all of the rest fall to. And as Luther says, where faith is present, where, where Christ by faith is forgiving those sins, uh, then all of the rest of the commandments can begin to fall in line.
0: So the Lord then, in verse 6, reminds his people, I don't change. I, the Lord, do not change. That's why you're not consumed. How, how does the Lord's, to use the theological term, immutability, how does the Lord's not-changingness Why does that matter at this point?
1: I think it's actually kind of a subtle rebuke of people because our attitude when things go wrong is always, where has God gone, right? We look at this pandemic and we say, well, now we ought to start paying attention to stuff. Where was God? Why does he allow all this suffering, right? As if he's the one who's who's kind of arbitrary and flippant about this stuff. God says, no, it's the other way around. Uh, You guys are all over the place. I, in fact, am stable. And it's because I am so stable, stable, by the way, in my steadfast love, not just in justice and and demanding that you do the right thing, but, but in fact, because I'm so patient. That's why you haven't been consumed already, Right it's always our our way of thinking that we can just kind of overcome our problems by doing some good things. We can push off that judgment, right? And, uh, you know, if we have a close call, we say, whew, that was close. Uh, I was lucky. We don't consider that the normal thing should be that we're just, I mean, we never make it ever. There's no reason why we shouldn't be consumed immediately. That joke about, you know, call out to God and, if, if this is wrong, God, you can lightning bolt me down where I stand, right? And, you know, no lightning bolt comes. I guess God isn't too mad. Should be a lightning bolt every time. We should always be consumed. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not. And that's the unchangingness that's going on here. Uh, at the beginning of the book, he said, you know, Esau, have I hated, but Jacob, has I, have I loved. And the Lord remains constant. So when he comes back, when he sends Jesus Christ, It is out of his love. Love caused his incarnation and brings him down to us to seek out his saints, to call them back to him in repentance so that they would believe in him, so that their sins would be forgiven, so that they would find stability again in him. And all that is beautifully laid out here by Malachi.
0: Well, and and the Lord does call them back to him at this very moment. He reminds them, as you said, He's not the one that's changed. They are the ones who have. They are the ones who have turned aside from what he had said. And and then our text concludes, the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, words like that seem ripe for misunderstanding. You return to me, the Lord says, and then I'll come back. How do we properly understand those words, Pastor Denzer?
1: We're going to hear one, or we would if we continued on too. That's often used for kind of stewardship Sundays, right? Where the Lord says, "You know, put me to the test, bring in the full tithe, and uh, and see if I won't uh, bless you beyond measure." Right? And some people say, "Well, there you go. It's a trigger. It's an if-then statement. I'll do this once I do my part. God will see it, and he'll uh, trigger his part." Right. It's kind of the way all of the you know the TV huckster preachers always preach too. Send in your seed money, and uh, then God will send you the blessings back. Uh, beware of those people, by the way. Uh, but the way the Lord is speaking it is still helpful to see that He call He is the one who has not changed, right? <laughs> in effect he's accommodating himself to our great stubbornness we we think that uh, he's wandered so far away from from us and uh, and like stubborn people in a fight you know well i'll be willing to forgive that person but only after they admit what they did wrong to me right i've got all these little uh all these little caveats and and ways to get out of things uh, and they've got to prove themselves to me first now how ridiculous is that for us the sinful people to say to the holy God, the one who's done everything for us, the one who in fact is sending his son to redeem us and to say, well, I'm not going to do it until God, you know, moves a couple inches my way. It's all really ridiculous since he's the one who's never moved. But he he, has, he accommodates himself to this language and says, oh, fine, return to me. I'll return to you. Right. The point is the Lord is always able to be returned to. He is always there ready to receive us again. This, by the way, is the way holy baptism works as a promise. You know, there's a way in which I suppose baptism is our promise to God. Uh, it's, it's kind of, I suppose, especially in places where Christianity is illegal, it's quite a statement to get baptized. puts a real red mark on you, uh, and I suppose you could even be attacked by others who don't like Christians. But we know that primarily it is the Lord's promise to us. And because it's the Lord's promise to us, it never goes away. That's why you only need one baptism. You don't treat baptism as if it were a confession and statement and bold decision of ours. Uh, Then I suppose you could be baptized every single day and every single minute because we fall away that often. But baptism is just the opposite. The Lord makes the promise, so it never ends. So you never need to be baptized more than once. And What do you do if you fall away? Our confessions say this very thing. To those who fall away after baptism, the church is to offer the forgiveness of sins. They can always return in repentance, and they ought to be forgiven. And in a real way, whenever we return in confession, seeking the Lord's forgiveness, we're doing nothing other than returning to that initial promise of our baptism, which had never gone away. Uh, Maybe we had fallen away from it. But the great news here is, you know, come on back. The Lord is unchanging, and, and particularly unchanging in his love and his mercy. And thanks be to God. That's why faith grabs to him and has it all.
0: Thanks be to God, indeed. We've got about two and a half minutes here, Pastor Denzer, to, to kind of wrap things up. And perhaps one way to do that would be to, to back up to verse 2, where the prophet asks, Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? What is the answer to that question? Who can endure the day of his coming? How how can we stand when the Lord appears, Pastor Denzer?
1: You've got to be gold. (laughs) You've got to be something that can endure the refiner's fire. But the Lord doesn't say that statement to throw us into hell. The Lord actually wants us to be with him. He loves us. That was the message that Malachi opened his book with, and we ought to remember it. He loves us. He wants to have us. And the way to stand then, he provides. The way to stand is this messenger, to hear his word, which even though heaven and earth pass away, his word will never pass away. It's to receive Jesus Christ by whose righteousness uh, all of our works with all of their sins are forgiven and we can stand righteous before God. I want to just look briefly, I referenced it a few times, but at 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter talks about the end times too, and he says he's writing about the last days, there's going to be scoffers. The scoffers are going to say, you know, where's the promise of his coming? Uh... uh but he says, Do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. He doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which those heavens will be set on fire and burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is a fantastic echoing of uh, the very thing that Malachi is talking about. The last day is going to be like a fire that exposes everything. We want to be those who are trusting and resting in Jesus Christ. We're at peace, we're without blemish because he has forgiven us. In that faith, in that confidence, then we stand on something that won't burn up, that that will last. And that means the Lord is going to see us through those fires and into his eternal life.
0: Pastor Sean Denzer is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and also the Chaplain for the International Center in St. Louis, helping us this morning with Malachi chapter 3, verses 1-7. through seven. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. Anytime. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.